that printer that I use to print checks is only in the office and now I can't get there. So what are we going to do to fix that? But what happened if your entire finance team was sick and not able to function on the day you have to file taxes? You know, getting, getting companies to think through those types of things, it, it doesn't all have to be, you know, gloom and doom. Howdy, y'all, and welcome to the Cyber Ranch Podcast. That's Marnie Wilking, CISO at Wayfair, talking about how bad things could have been from an organizational resilience perspective. Marnie was gracious enough to come on down to the ranch and to talk with me about this subject. Yes, this is partially another show about COVID, but we also cover some critical aspects of organizational resilience, specifically how it means much more than just recovery of operations and what it should encompass. We're talking about the bullets we have, at least most of us thus far dodged, what organizations should have learned, and how to improve resilience in general. It's a fantastic conversation, and I want to thank Marnie for coming on down to the ranch. Welcome to the Cyber Ranch Podcast, recorded under the big blue skies of Texas, where one CISO explores the cybersecurity landscape with the help of friends and experts. Here's your host, Alan Alford. So briefly, why don't you tell us a bit about your background in cyber and a little bit about your day job? Sure. I got my start in cybersecurity completely by accident. I graduated with a math degree, had done a little bit of coding in college and swore up and down that computers were evil and was I was never going to do anything with them and then promptly got recruited by one of the big four consulting firms who sent me to coding camp for three weeks. So after a stint there, I was changing jobs and applied for a job at Wells Fargo. And it turned out the job was with a newly formed cryptography services division at Wells Fargo. And I started out implementing encryption on the mainframe and thought it was the most fun that I had ever done in my entire career. So I kept going. I loved it. It was the right combination of, um, paranoia and math. And it was really fun. <laughs> <That's brilliant. laughs> and so uh, I spent about 20 years in, a little shy of 20 years in financial services, and then uh, was a CISO at a healthcare technology company uh, based in Auckland, New Zealand, which is fabulous. And now I'm the CISO at Wayfair, where we have zillions of things. And uh, in my purview at Wayfair, I have all things security. So AppSec, CloudSec, Enterprise Security, Security Operations, Risk and Compliance, plus um, Privacy. Okay. And I guess you guys have got a little bit of ProdSec there too, technically, being a, being yes. a, web, a website destination. You've got ProdSec as well, which is my personal favorite. Yeah. So, okay, Auckland, New Zealand, back to the States. Like, you got to walk me through that real quick. How the heck did you end up in Auckland? Well, so they were headquartered in Auckland, but they had an office in Scottsdale and one in Boston, as a matter of fact. And so I worked in the office in Scottsdale, but got to travel to New Zealand several times a year, which was awesome. Oh, fun. I, I highly, highly recommend it if you've never been. Right on. So we had a chat before the show about organizational resilience. We were specifically talking about resilience in the face of COVID. And I guess there's been a million and one COVID shows done to death, but I think if we focus really on this resilience concept, this organizational resilience concept in specific, I think we can we can really dig into some interesting stuff that I don't feel like has been done before. Um, so let's start with that term right there, organizational resilience. What does that actually mean to you? So I think we often think about resilience as being able to handle and recover from difficult situations, like disaster recovery, right? Getting back to quote unquote normal. 
organizational resilience is not just about how do we recover from this disaster situation. It's about making resilience more purposeful and strategic. It's the ability at an organizational level to anticipate potential threats and disruptions, proactively planning for how to manage those events. And this is important, using lessons learned to improve your resilience capability going forward. And it's really important to note that disruption doesn't just mean bad things that happen. Right? At the beginning of COVID, a lot of e-commerce businesses in particular found themselves in the very enviable position of having a significant increase in site visits and sales. Sure. That's a great problem to have, but it is disruptive. So you know, a lot of those companies pivoted very quickly to cloud, maybe. And as a result, hopefully they have some lessons learned to take away from this, either you know, maybe from a capacity planning standpoint or maybe even a delivery network standpoint. But really the organizational resilience, I think, is a great thing to focus on because it's really about that adaptability and growing and improving based on past experiences and not just trying to get back to normal. Okay. So there's, there's a, I guess there's a positive and a negative to it, right? Like everyone's like, Oh, COVID was bad. COVID hurt us. COVID did bad things. We had to scatter to the four winds and we weren't, you know, we were caught unprepared and blah, blah, blah. But, but you're taking a perspective that, that even the positive boons of COVID could have been negatives and even the negatives could have been positives, right? So the e-commerce site, for example, getting overwhelmed with customers, you know, I, I would imagine if you sold uh, home office equipment, that you probably experienced one heck of a boom uh, for a good while there and quite possibly couldn't keep up with delivery operations and everything else. Right. That's so, right. so that's playground I think I, equipment. I yeah. Right. <laughs> Just anything where the kids are at home yeah. and the parents are at home. Right. Mm-hmm. So that, that makes perfect sense to me. So, so there's some positives turning out to potentially be negatives, but, but at the end of the day, I, I think, we've all sort of viewed this whole COVID experience as a negative, right? Like COVID did bad things, COVID bad, right? We all agree COVID is bad. I got my booster shot yesterday and I'm feeling horrible today, quite frankly. So sorry. (laughs) another example of yes, COVID bad. Um, But at the end of the day, if we are improving resilience and by your definition, you're not just saying, oh, it's the ability to recover. It's the ability to strategically plan and adapt and grow and evolve. It's it's bigger than just recovery. And if that's really the target, if organizational resilience is the target, then it seems to me that COVID actually did us quite a quite a good turn. Yeah, I think so. And I think I think COVID was interesting too because I, I mean, so one of the things that I've heard hands down from all of my colleagues is that those of us who are already working towards zero trust were the best able to pivot to having everybody working from home. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that most people really thought about zero trust as a remote work option. Like that, right. that wasn't that wasn't why people were moving to zero trust. But I think it's a nice side benefit that all of us have found as, oh, hey, actually, from a business standpoint, this put us in a really good position. So it really was, as security leaders like to say, a business enabler because yeah. by moving towards zero trust and putting those basic things in place, we were able to, to pivot and handle COVID. Um, I, interestingly, I think one of the other, I think one of the most fun, positive things that's come out of this is it created a whole industry around virtual team building, which is very fun. Yes. <laughs> All yes. of the like Airbnb experiences and, you know, watching puppies on camera and, you know, tours of baby goat farms and virtual wine tasting. Right. And I think 
um, you know, I have a global team and have for a, a very long time. And I don't know that like, I would have thought of doing some of those things before. And in fact, when COVID first started and we were trying to find some team building things to do, it was actually really hard to find initially. And then right. this whole cottage industry grew up around this. And I really hope that it all stays because it, it, it's a very fun aspect. It, it is. And it, you know, there's been a certain amount of redundancy to it. Like, you know, I mean, the wine tasting thing, I think I've done, I don't know, <laughs> eight or 10 of those in the last year. And it's kind of like, okay, I'm done with virtual wine tastings. But I also did a, a virtual coffee tasting with some incredibly exotic coffees. And uh, there was a virtual cheese tasting. And there was, you know, so so the idea certainly extends out. There are certainly things I've done in the last year that I probably never would have done had they not been virtual events, uh, you know, where we'll ship you the stuff and you do it from home over video. I, yeah. I think definitely there's there's been some positives for me. Net were positives, and to the vendor community out there, virtual whiskey tastings. You can always sign me up for one of those. Uh, <laughs> Gin, yeah, chocolate. <laughs> there we go. Yeah. Yeah, I, virtual I actually, whiskey tastings. I think the the hybrid work environment has been good too, because I think that there were a lot of companies that had not really thought about remote work before and were very tied to a, a location or an office. Mm -hmm. And so I think putting it out there that, hey, this can work and we can still be productive and successful, yep. probably open the eyes of a lot of executives out there. And hopefully, again, in the spirit of learning from things, hopefully they've learned from it and are able to like take those lessons and figure out how do we build a hybrid work environment? How do we make sure people stay engaged, whether they're in the office or not in the office? Yeah. To, to me, the real tell on that one has always been the leadership ranks. In other words, even the places in the past pre-COVID that were relatively pro on work from home, leaders still had to work at headquarters. Like there was this kind of this firm and fast rule. If you're C-suite, you're at headquarters kind of a thing. And it was a really rare exception to have a C-suite who was not at headquarters. And, and you know, obviously plenty of examples. We all know somebody who's in that situation and, and was even before COVID. But, but there was a rule there. And I'm seeing that the companies that used to have that rule have bent those rules. And it's exciting to me to see CISO Opportunity remote as the location. Like yeah. how cool is that? Yeah, that could be a CISO in, in New Zealand perhaps. Yes. <laughs> I, again, I highly recommend traveling there when they when they let us back in. Yeah, I mean, I think it was, I think, a little bit more difficult without being able to travel at all. But if you can do hybrid, you can do remote, and you don't mind traveling periodically. But to your point, maybe instead of traveling every other week, maybe it's once a month or once a quarter, because now we know that we can get things done remotely still. And that also means, you know, less carbon footprint, hopefully from less travel, uh, right. less wear and tear on me as a person from all the travel. So, and, you know, less cost to the company if people are not traveling as much to try to be in person. Yeah. So, so there's a second cottage industry that I think differs from the model we just discussed, right? So things like, you know, home office equipment, big boom there. Presumably by now tapered down because everybody's got their home office gear now. But the, the other little cottage industry that I found fascinating was the virtual office spaces where you just yeah. get one little room and you rent, you know, by the, by the day or by the month or by the week. You know, it's like, you know, the, the virtual office spaces. I think they took a downturn at the beginning just like all office spaces did. And I think now that folks are starting to return, I'm starting to see that those places are filling up fast. Yeah. And, and, and I'm not sure what that is. It, it, it might be just the sanity check of some people tired of working from home just need a place to be. Like I know some friends that are actively paying for these places just as an escape from their own home office. Mm -hmm. 
And other times, I think it's this hybrid remote model that companies are now employing. And you still want to feel like you're going into the office. So, you, you know, so I, I'm seeing an uptick there. My wife just got a space in one of these places and it was one of the last ones available in the area. It took us oh, forever wow. to find it. And yeah. I was very surprised by that. Yeah, I, th- I think you're right. I think, I mean, I will say six, six, seven months into it last year, I was like, I don't care where I go. I've got to go somewhere else other than these four walls, like just right. somewhere else. And part of the problem was living in Phoenix at the very beginning of COVID, weather was still beautiful because it's March. And so I was able to go work outside whenever I wanted. And then July hit and it's 120 degrees outside. And even, you know, under a covered porch, it's too hot to be outside, which meant I was stuck inside the same house, the same office all day long. And so I did notice we did take a trip. um, We just we drove to California and spent several days on the beach and just getting a different perspective really mm-hmm. helped my focus. So that's, I've sort of figured out that I need to do that periodically, just go somewhere else for a couple days and work from there. And just looking, having a different view in front of you <laughs> instead of the same wall right. you've been staring at can right. make a really big difference. And so that's why I do think that those office spaces are, are starting to take off again, because like you said, more people are working remotely, which is great, but some people don't like working in their own house or would like to yeah. do, have more separation or just, you know, have children running around or pets that, you know, makes it a right. little bit less easy to, to get work done. So, yeah, yeah, no. And I, and I think there's a certain delineation, you know, the work-life balance when it's in your home, it's really easy to just keep working from the moment you wake up to the moment you go to bed and, and the, the, the dividing line, the definitive work done, home life begin now sort of moment. I don't think you get that so much when you're working from home. So I I think some people are doing it for that reason too. It's like, once you have an office to go to, you have an office to leave. Yeah. And I I think actually from from an organizational resilience standpoint, again, I think, I hope that that's one of the takeaways as well is that for the last year and change, not a lot of people have taken vacations. And so there's been a lot of a lot of productivity, but a lot of burnout. And so I'm hoping that companies are also realizing how important time off is and making sure people get time off because Mm -hmm. that I think can really, um, it stimulates creativity, innovation, you know, just even, I realized the other day that I missed my commute because that was time that even walking home after day at the office, I had a little downtime and sometimes that would like spark some ideas as I was walking home and not, you know, having the computer in front of me and not having to focus on work. So um, I think that's a really important aspect of resilience also is making sure that you're planning for people to take time off too, because you have right. to. Right. And, and I'll point this out too, just a total side note, adjunct to what you just said, podcast listenership is down since COVID started. No commutes. Because historically, the commute was where you did your podcasting. And so what I found, and this is a good tip, gentle listeners, walk your dog during the day, take a break, listen to my show while you're walking your dog. That has actually been the best success story I've heard from fans that have stuck with the show, that, that you know, COVID be damned, we're going to keep listening. And uh, the dog walk seems to be a good yep. time to do that. I've had several folks suggest that to me, and I've started actually doing that myself, walking the dog and listening to other shows. Yeah. I actually started doing that, and it's nice out again in Phoenix, so I can do it again. But at the end of the day, like after my, my last meeting, I could just keep going. But after right. the actual last meeting, I go for a walk and yep. listen to whatever 
podcast I want to listen to, including this yep. one. Um, but it, it's it's sort of my commute time. And I'll tell my husband, right. I'm, I'm, I'm leaving. I'm taking my commute right now. <laughs> All right, let's pause right there for a quick word from our sponsor. Security controls fail everywhere. They fail constantly. And worst of all, they fail silently. That's why you need Attack IQ, the leading automated insights platform to continually validate your defenses. Better insights, better decisions, and real security outcomes. Get it all with Attack IQ. Plus, check out the Attack IQ Academy for free cybersecurity training featuring the good people here at Hacker Valley Studio. Register today at academy.attackiq.com and let them know Hacker Valley Studio sent you. Yeah, it's the definitive put an end to the workday ritual, and I think it's so critical to have something like that. So, so we talked earlier about the fact that for organizational resilience, COVID could actually be a plus, right? There's another perspective in all the, the complaining about COVID that you hear is that people didn't talk about how bad it could have been, right? In other words, yes, there's a negative for sure. It, it was a net negative, I would argue, but how bad could it have been? What bullets did we dodge from that organizational resilience perspective? So in when we think about business continuity, there are generally five categories of disruptions, right? Loss of facilities, loss of people, loss of technology, loss of materials, loss of equipment. Mm-hmm. When we looked at what happened with covid it was really just loss of facilities. We couldn't use mm-hmm. the offices that people were accustomed to being in, like we were just talking about. So, and, and then for some some areas, it did become a loss of materials, right? We had shipping problems, which mm-hmm. meant that we couldn't get certain parts and materials. So there, there was a piece of that. But this was a pandemic. This really could have included the loss of people component. Pandemic planning has just not been on most companies' radars at all, but but banks are required to start having pandemic testing, planning and testing in 2007 after the SARS and bird flu viruses and that the FFIC got very concerned and created some standards and some requirements for banks to do as part of their regular business continuity testing. So they've been thinking about that strategy for, you know, what happens if an entire team of people isn't available, but most companies haven't thought it through that way. So, you know, again, we we lost facilities. And so there were some things that, you know, people maybe figured out, Oh, wait, that printer that I use to print checks is only in the office and now I can't get there. So what are we going to do to fix that? But right. what happened? What would happen if your entire finance team was sick and not able to function on the day you have to file taxes? Right. <laughs> so, just you know, getting companies to think through those types of things—it doesn't all have to be you know gloom and doom, right? It, it you don't have to say, oh my god, you know, what happens if there's a hurricane that wipes out the entire East Coast or all of the power or whatever? But just getting businesses to stop and think about what are some of the business critical functions and what would you do if you didn't have the people to do those functions, if you didn't have the place, the the facilities to do that, if you didn't have technology, if you didn't have the materials coming in, right? If, If you are shipping things like a lot of companies are, what happens if your box provider is no longer there, right? What happens right. if your drivers, or, you know, if you're using, you know, UPS or the postal service, right? What happens when they're no longer there and you can't ship things? So 
like thinking through some of those things. And it could be positive too, right? You could say, like we talked about, what happens if in the span of two days, our site visits double or triple? Can we, can we handle that? What would we do if that happened? Or, you know, what if all of a sudden, you know, if you're thinking about airline industry, what happens if suddenly you go from, you know, 2 million people traveling a day to 100,000 and then back to 2 million in snap of the fingers, right? Which is sort of what started to happen. And they were, you know, trying to hedge and plan. And then ultimately when travel really came back, they weren't ready. It, you know, they had not gotten pilots retrained. They hadn't gotten flight attendants retrained. So thinking through and having those tabletop exercises, you know, you don't have to go into a lot of technical detail with the tabletop exercises. But when we do tabletop exercises, I try to make sure that a a good portion of the leadership team is in the room also. Yes. So that they're hearing the discussion and they're hearing the decisions that have to be made at certain points. And so Mm -hmm. having those discussions and talking through some of the decisions that might be made is better now than, you know, in, in the middle of a, in the middle of a crisis. Right. Right. No, that's, that's a fantastic perspective. And you're not the only guest who's had that same suggestion of tabletop exercises aren't just to go through the motions, you know, they're the, they're to educate and wake up the business. Yeah. And even if it's only a pretend scary scenario, I think being in the room to hear like, oh, wow, that could happen. Ooh. And then that could happen. And oh dear. And that could happen too. And now what? Right. Um, I, I call it the what if game, right? Okay. Now what? Now what? What if this happens? What if that happens? Now what? Now what? You know, and, and uh, you know, something like the pandemic. And, and I think to your point, it's very astute to say, okay, we've all done tabletops and we've all planned for the bad thing. But to your point about the airlines, did we plan for the good thing returning and then disappearing again and then returning again? Like okay. if you're not prepping for this pendulum swinging, I wonder if, you know, every tabletop shouldn't include some halfway through the bad thing. Suddenly everything starts coming back online and people start naturally attaching and, oh my goodness, you weren't ready for them. And, you know, there needs to be a certain amount of recovery it still has to be considered as something to address yeah. as opposed to, you know, oh, and then everything gets magically back on and we're all happy and we're done with our tabletop. So. Right. Yeah. And again, uh, hopefully it's not just a goal of how do we get back to normal? Hopefully it's a goal of how do we get back to something to being better than we were before those things happen. And I think tabletops do a very good job of helping that happen. Yeah. Also, you don't have to wait for the disruption to actually happen. You can have those conversations, right. start planting the seeds I've had a lot of really, really great discussions in in those tabletop exercises, and mm-hmm. it's not all cybersecurity. And it, you know, and I think too, I think it, it's great for us as cybersecurity leaders to to help lead those discussions because we might start with a cybersecurity scenario, but mm-hmm. it's super easy to pivot into something that's. A, True, a business impact, right? And and talking through what is this other thing that could possibly happen? Cybersecurity, right. there's such a um, convergence anymore of when there's some sort of incident or disruption, there's a cybersecurity component. There's often a physical security component. There's a social media component. Like all of those things are there. And mm-hmm. it's good to talk about all of them yeah. with the people in the room. Right, right, right. It may be, it may be triggered as a cyber event, or it may be brought up and thought of because it's a cyber event, but it's much bigger. And this goes back to what you were saying about your, your categories for unavailability, you know, technology and equipment. I, I think most of the world was caught flat-footed on VPN infrastructure. Yeah. They had it. 
but it wasn't set up for a capacity of every single worker is presumed to be at home. And so there was a lot of scrambling just to get people connected, period. I think there was a huge period of time for a lot of companies, several weeks, if not a month or two went by, where they had workers they were paying whose essential ability to log in and do the work they needed to do was non-existent. Right. And so there's there's a virtual loss of equipment, virtual loss of technology, all because simple connectivity wasn't in place. And that's not a cyber issue. No, but um, multi-factor authentication is another aspect of that, oh, right? Again, yeah. most folks who were moving towards zero trust would have already had that in place, but there are a lot of companies that weren't making that move yet. Yep. And if everybody is co-located and they're only accessing in the office, maybe they didn't have multi-factor authentication. Maybe they didn't have mm-hmm. it everywhere. I, I heard a story. Um, I, I don't actually remember who it is, which is probably good, but it was a healthcare system and in a sort of a panic, they went, oh God, okay, so we're just going to throw multi-factor authentication on everything. Oh, wow. Literally everything. So every every new application that somebody went to, there was another round of, of MFA that popped up, right? That is such a horrible user experience, but it was the only way they could get it implemented in short order. Right. But again, hopefully the lesson learned from that was, okay, maybe we can architect this better for next time. And also now that we know we have people who can work remotely, we probably should just keep this in place. And so let's make it right. You know, and that's not just a usability story either. There's also a transfer of risk with that kind of model too. And this is a very gruesome example, but it's, it's, it's a common enough trope in the movies. You need the fingerprint or the palm. So you knock the guy out or kill him and drag his body over and slap his palm on it. Right. What all you're doing is you're, you're relocating the weak point in the equation, right? You're now saying that the human is the weak point, right? This is, you know, all I got to do is, you know, I need your finger. I don't, you know, and I'm in right. And, And I'll get your finger however I need to get it. You know, boom, you're unconscious. You know, it's the same thing with the MFA. When you throw that out like that willy nilly and just start rolling it out everywhere, you now have a transfer of risk because somewhere somebody is answering phone calls and saying, oh, yes, this really is Marnie really asking about how she gets in with her MFA and let's make sure we mail her the key to this address or, you know, whatever the solution might be. There's a whole new yeah. weakness in identity and verification with that sort of equation that that comes about as well. And I think that's something that a lot of businesses suffered from as well that I, I think, you know, in tabletop exercises may not have gleaned this out prior to COVID, but there were a lot of decisions made where to do the thing and get the people connected, you were 100% relying on a voice on the phone is the person they claim to be and entire systems of security built around that paradigm. And all you're doing is transferring the weakness. So at the end of it, I think that there was a lot of identification challenges uh, where people were just accepting that the voice on the phone was who they said it was, uh, that the address on the phone was the address to ship the key to, the, whatever the, the different MFA strategies might have been, VPN connectivity, VDI, whatever it was. There was an awful lot of trust being put in and help desk type systems and situations um, that, you know, the, the whole point of MFA is to validate and verify you're really who you say you are. But there's this whole weak link in the chain if you're having to scramble to roll MFA out to an audience that's already been scattered to the four winds. Well, and it created an interesting privacy conundrum also. A lot of companies, again, assuming that they have people coming into a location on a regular basis, when they send things, the the mailing address is it goes to the office or they have it available in the office. And suddenly, if companies needed or wanted to send something, Mm -hmm. like maybe last holiday or this holiday, they wanted to send something, that's not what 
home addresses are supposed to be used right, for. Right. You know, it's supposed to be used for a very specific business purpose right. of mailing W-2s, yep. mailing paychecks, those kinds of things, but not necessarily for sending gifts right. to. Yeah. Every time you sign so up for one of those virtual it, tastings, there's another vendor knows your home address, right? Right. Yeah. Well, and hopefully not, right? If they're doing it right, hopefully it means that they've, they're using a third party and they've got it pretty well contained. And so, it, and it's being shipped separately so that, you know, your sales team doesn't suddenly show up in your driveway. Right. right. <laughs> There's a flip side to that too. And I saw this picture on Twitter and it was absolutely horrifying. Somebody had sent one of these fruit gift baskets to the office right before COVID hit. And months later, someone went into the office and saw it sitting on the desk and took a photo of its state at that time. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That was was horrible. I came into the office a few, it was probably about two months after everything shut down. I, I was back in Boston and knew that I needed to get stuff out of my desk because I was concerned that I had left food there. And so got permission to come in and, and get, you know, box some things up and, and get everything out of there. And as I was walking through the office, it was the weirdest feeling. It literally looked like the apocalypse had happened. Like it literally just looked like people had gotten up and walked off. Right. Paper scattered everywhere still. Things. The pen's still laying on yeah, the desk. So the, and the, jackets yeah. still, you know, on the backs of chairs and hanging up and, you know, maybe a sweater, some shoes under desks, like bowls of cereal still sitting on desks. Like it literally just looked like people just went, just got up and like skedaddled. And it was really kind of creepy to, to walk around and, and think, oh my God, like this is what we left behind. So I don't intend to ever leave food in the office again. Yeah, no kidding. (laughs) No kidding. All right. Well, this has been a lovely conversation, and we've certainly talked about a few tangential issues here, COVID-related, that were beyond the resilience, but I think we really hammered in on this resiliency theme pretty well. Organizational in scope means that it's all about the planning and the strategy. It's not just about the recovery. The fact that COVID actually gave us some real positives there, uh, the fact that tabletop exercises are now more than ever valuable, and the fact that we need to expand the scope of those tabletop exercises, even the positive what-ifs, which could be negatives. What happens when it all comes back at once? So any other concluding thoughts on this organizational resilience and how COVID might have impacted it or what sort of advice you might have for the go forward plan, you know, as we eventually one day do return to the office, I'm knock on wood, I'm assuming that happens at some point. I think one of the other key takeaways, honestly, is around communication and particularly at the leadership level. I think one of the things I've really learned through this and seen is that communication by leadership Mm -hmm. is really key to resilience. You have to make it part of your culture. Doing tabletops with a handful of people isn't quite enough. It's great to start those conversations and that will start to permeate. But it's not just about having a plan and communicating the plan. It's about empowering people to get creative when they need to in using that plan. And the only way you can empower people to be creative and, and use the the resilience plan is if you've communicated Mm -hmm. the right vision and people understand what that vision is so that they can maintain that even during a disruption. That's what organizational resilience really is, is making sure that you can keep going and then get better at the end because 
you've learned something from what just happened. And that, that leadership communication is really yeah, key that's to a super sure critical that point. That's, that's a very critical point. And I, you know, I think people think of communication when it comes to these kinds of events as the, like the crisis comes, you know, like, like when we get ransomware, do we have a communication plan? Do we have a communication officer? Is there somebody who's going to talk to the cops? Somebody who's going to talk to the press? Like, but you don't think of that larger communication issues so much and and what a critical and vital role it's got in this whole shebang as well well listen marty wilking CISO at wayfair i got one last question for you what surprises you the most in cybersecurity? that's a really interesting question i don't know how much surprises me anymore after doing this for 25 years honestly the thing that has surprised me the most relatively recently is how mainstream cybersecurity has, has really become people People who aren't involved in technology at all, my parents, um, have some awareness of cybersecurity and what it means. And while it feels overwhelming occasionally, and you know, with like watching golf tournaments, there are you know advertisements by cybersecurity vendors. So of course that means that you know your CEO, CIO, somebody's gonna say, "Hey, I saw this commercial. Right. You sh- we should probably go talk to them." Right. So it, it starts to get a little overwhelming. But on the other hand. This like broad awareness is really what right. we've been asking for for 20 years. So I think it's a great opportunity to, yep. to leverage that sudden awareness as a, yep. a way to like better democratize yep. That's, like, uh, how it, to do it's, security. It's a very valuable, very valuable thing that they're involved now. And I, you know, I jokingly refer to the negative example of that as airline magazine syndrome. CEO reads an airline magazine half pager and comes back all freaked <laughs> out about whatever it might be, ransomware or whatever. Yep. Uh, that's always my running gag on that one. But but the reality is, even if it is just a half-page article in an airline magazine, oh my goodness, we made it to airline magazines. You know, like how cool is that? <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> I know. It's awesome. So that's yeah. awesome. Well, listen, Marty, thank you so much for coming on down to the ranch. Thank you, listeners. Y'all be good now. 